Welcome to The Bailey. This is the show that requires you to get a drug test after every episode. I'm your host, Yassin Maschot, and today's topic is drugs. Colon, should you do them? Colon, should you do them? Drugs, are they good? Are they great? Um, (laughs) 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 We're going to cover the entire uh, range of acceptable opinions on this matter. (laughs) And uh, to start us off... Uh, welcome to uh, our latest contributor, the Sultan of Swing. Hello. Could you uh, introduce yourself and uh, provide your general position statement on why drugs are either good or great? Hello, I'm the uh, Sultan of Swing. I'd describe myself as a disaffected centrist. And on the good, great spectrum, I am here to be the designated scold and say that uh, drugs should generally be less tolerated in society and culture. I would uh, describe myself as agnostic on the ideal legal situation. I don't necessarily think that stricter sentencing laws for drugs necessarily have any effect on drug use, but I would like to be making the statement that you personally should probably not do drugs and that people in general should be less tolerant of those who do. And uh, Sultan, do you feel um, disadvantaged being up against the, uh... <laughs> or do you feel disadvantaged being the uh, sole scold on this uh, episode? Wait, am I not also? Z- oh, I guess Zentos is also oh, okay, in the same great. position. Cool, you guys can tag team. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad that we've got somebody else in here who's gonna <laughs> back me up against the big boys. All right, yeah, Zentos. <laughs> well, well, all right, all right. Maybe I uh, jumped the gun. Um, too many drugs. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, Xantos, welcome back. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Xantos Sell. Um, my position for this episode is going to be that uh, drugs are bad and people shouldn't use them. I think people generally use drugs to escape their shitty lives and that time spent high is time that could be spent either improving their life or doing something that else that won't actively uh, make their life worse. I think psychedelics aren't exempt from this, but are bad for you in, in an interestingly different way. Cool. Uh, Unsane, hello again. Hey, Yassine. I, uh So I'm a little surprised. Yeah, I thought I was going to be here um, as, as the sole anti-position. Uh, in fact, I'm actually much more in the middle. I'd say uh, among all of you, from what I understand of your positions, I'm probably pretty dead center in that I, I really, I have a little bit of drug experience in terms of psychedelics. I want to do more. I think it's a lot of fun and cool. At the same time, I have a huge number of reservations about it, and I was all prepared to be the anti-side. Uh, so I'm actually kind of happy to be in a position where I think I get to argue with everybody. Yeah, don't worry. Like, if there is a pro side, they're all using, like, performance-enhancing substances to bolster their position. So it's not going to be, like, a one-sided Clobberfest. Welcome to the Bailey, where the host accuses you of hypocrisy before the episode even starts. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, introversity. Hey, Yassine. Uh My position is that drugs are cool. Uh, they're good. They're normal. They're nice. Everyone should be doing drugs all the time. Uh, not actually, but I think that... Uh, Basically, drugs should be far more accepted than they are currently. 
in you know general society uh, and with the caveat that it's dependent on the type of drug uh, so some drugs are pretty much exclusively destructive and other drugs are uh, capable of being used as either medicines uh, recreationally for fun or uh, for other types of benefits, psychological benefits, uh, spiritual benefits, things like that. So compared to our baseline of right now, there should be much more acceptance, much more research, uh, and people should be more open to the idea of trying drugs. That's not to say that everyone should try all the drugs or do all of them or, you know, if anyone doesn't want to do drugs, that's fine and they shouldn't do them and that's it. So, you know, there's no pressuring of people to do something they don't want to do. It's a societal level. They should be more accepted than they are. So perhaps uh, the best place to start on this topic is to, uh, uh, let's see if we can agree on like a rough rubric in terms of categorizations for different substances. And for this podcast, we're going to be primarily talking about nootropics and psychedelics. Unsane, how about you start us off? A nootropic is a drug where the primary effect is to enhance your cognition or uh, productivity output. Okay. How would you even define psychedelic? Uh, <laughs> you know it when it hits you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, nootropics is, has like a, a succinct definition. It's a substance taken primarily to enhance your cognitive ability. That makes sense. Uh, but w what's a psychedelic? Basically, they're drugs that produce hallucinations or pseudo hallucinations and uh, some sort of expansion of consciousness. Some, you know, feeling like you're more one with the earth or feeling more connected to other people, something along those lines. Let's just go with nootropics as a starting point. So this category uh, comprises of, you know, anything from caffeine to nicotine, maybe. Uh, to uh, things like uh, modafinil, which are supposedly widely used in the in the tech sector, these are substances that are intended and seem to be very effective at uh, significantly increasing your capacity, your cognitive capacity, your alertness, uh, your ability to remember things, your ability to focus on tedious tasks. They're seen as performance enhancing substances for the mind. Some of the nootropics are just like accepted to the point to the point of banality so coffee and tea would be examples of that and i suppose i guess you can also include uh, nicotine as well in, in different times so sultan do you have any broad objections to the category of nootropics I would say on the lower end that uh, I don't see anything broadly wrong with nootropics. Obviously, I just uh, finished up off about two cups of coffee before coming on this podcast. Uh, generally, wouldn't say that there's a significant harm in nootropics at the level of coffee. I would say that there is some potential uh, for negative outcomes for the individual and society when stronger nootropics are sort of normalized because it induces this sort of rat race phenomenon 
Mm-hmm. That can obviously be seen in schools where a lot of children are diagnosed with like attention deficit disorder or other learning disabilities in order to be prescribed what are essentially nootropics to improve their school performance. And that just sort of changes the playing field to the extent that there can be the phenomenon of everybody now having to go on nootropics to be able to compete, so to speak. So uh, in uh, evaluating or assessing the different substances that you're considering, uh, do you take into account the danger or risk of each each substance? So for example, when you declare that coffee is more or less harmless, is that, well, when you declare that coffee, caffeine is more or less acceptable, what's your basis for it? I would say insofar as the effects are generally very weak and mild, that is, if you have a cup of coffee versus don't have one, just the difference is you're going to be groggy that morning, uh, that short of caffeine pills, it's difficult to take enough caffeine to actually be a significant harm to your body, um, and that in general, it is fairly normalized, fairly hard to overdose um, outside of, again, pill form, and that it generally does not change your brain to the status of addiction, the way a lot of other harder drugs can potentially do. Okay. So you, you, you take into account kind of like a broad uh, assessment of its effects, its risks, potential upside, and potential downside? Yes. Okay. Uh, Xantos, you wanted to get something in? Yeah, I, I think I have a, a slightly different um, concern about nootropics that comes from the same the same place. Um, but I think that what I see as the factor that makes it more or less of a danger is slightly less about the effects and more about like the in terms of the health effects and more about whether you can be you know competitive without taking that substance um so i think the example that comes that comes to my mind is not about nootropics but uh, an analogy is a sport like bodybuilding where Everybody who wants to compete in a bodybuilding show is on steroids, um, like massive doses of steroids. And that's because when everyone else is on testosterone and trend and all of these substances, if you want to compete in bodybuilding, it's a requirement. You will not be able to put on a good show if you are not. And that becomes a societal problem when it's not limited to just a particular niche like bodybuilding. But with things like Adderall and maybe Modafinil, um, if, if I'm trying to get a, a competitive job in the future, am I going to be required to be using these substances? Because if I don't, then I won't be able to compete. Yeah, I actually want to echo that concern about how nootropics could potentially significantly alter the the playing field. Uh, I went to law school. I 
was never prescribed or was ever on any sorts of any type of nootropics. I don't even like coffee. I only drank tea. Uh, and my classmates, uh, talked openly about, oh yeah, like my parents found like a psychiatrist that can give me Adderall so that I can, you know, study for six hours. And, um, I mean, right now I just kind of feel resentment, but if, if I had the the opportunity to do it all again, I would absolutely like do any, anything I could to get a modafinil or Adderall prescription because it did seem unfair given how, um, I mean, your success in, in law school particularly is, is based on, on this like hyper competitive ranking system and any advantage that you can eke out against your classmates is going to be a huge boon to you. Uh, so there is going to be a, a big drive to take, pick up as many advantages as you can. I recognize the pitfalls with, you know, bodybuilding and, uh, other sports, like obviously cycling, uh, is, is one of them. Uh, but I, but I understand like the concern that Xantos is saying here that this has the potential to affect a lot more than just like niche hobbies, niche sports. Anyone not concerned with that? Actually, I just want to echo it. Um, yeah, that, that's the trouble with worshiping Moloch is that it's, it's locally optimal. It's the rational thing for every individual to do. And all that results in is at the end is everyone who's competitive is stuck on this stuff uh, I'd actually even say coffee has done that already. I, I also don't drink coffee. I have this weird thing. I don't know if it's genetic or what, but I can't really metabolize caffeine very well. So coffee hits me like a truck and it doesn't go away. I'll be up for at least 36 hours from one cup. But um, I look at other people who are just zombies and they'll joke about it. That That's how you know something's really sick is when people who are drug addicted are all walking around talking about how, ha, 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 I'm such a zombie today because I didn't have my drug. And they're all doing it all the time. I mean, I have family members where I go visit and yeah, if they don't have coffee, I mean, they can hardly even talk to you in the morning. I, I have a hard time imagining that, you know, not getting out of bed and feeling clear minded and, and ready for the day because I didn't have my drug. That, that's a red flag. And the only reason we don't see it that way is because it's so widespread. University, you wanted to say something? Yeah. So I don't know. I guess this is a little more of a devil's advocate because I do, I do recognize the potential for uh, risk of um, spiraling towards the top, so to speak, uh, with nootropics. But I think we are f- either forgetting or neglecting uh, that many, probably most jobs are not the sort of jobs where nootropics are going to make you any substantially better at the job or make you substantially more competitive. So we are most... Yeah, but those people don't matter. Right, but we're talking about basically the PMC and above, the professional professional managerial class and above. So, you know, anyone who has a job that's not, that doesn't require either an extremely competitive undergrad college degree or a graduate degree, there's basically no reason that they're they would need nootropics that nootropics would give them substantial boost. Um, so it's basically only among the people who are already selected for maximum intelligence, maximum discipline, maximum, you know, ability to, to handle whatever coursework or education they're getting. Just to uh, have a, an anecdote on that point is I think some 
jobs, even at, at a lower level than that, can benefit from from using substances. Oh yeah. I used to work at a busy, busy restaurant and on holidays there'd be special promotions and so we'd just be packed. And I had a manager who every Halloween would do a bump of uh, cocaine before his shift <laughs> and then come in and work like a beast for like 15 hours. <laughs> and the management, everyone loved to, to work with him that day because he would just be like on it. And zoned in for the entire shift. Are you? So you're saying this guy took one bump of coke and he was flying for 15 hours? Uh, he he told us he took one bump of coke. How, whether he redosed <laughs> himself during breaks or not, I, I'm unaware yeah, of that. He, but. he definitely did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in any case, that's um, you're like you're not wrong, and I should have said that at the beginning. Yes, you absolutely can become better at, you know, whatever, virtually any job with the right drug. But the question is, is people, do people who use that drug completely outcompete others? And the answer to that in the, I mean, I can't think of a single unskilled job where there's going to be a drug that will just be a requirement to have or else you can't find that job. So I want to, I'm calling back a, a comment that Great Jasoni made uh, in our Discord server regarding putting modafinil in the water supply. I think it was mostly a joke, but uh, going off of the research on modafinil, for example, and uh, especially how, it, um, how it's been summarized by a friend of the pod, Gwern. He's actually not a friend of the pod, but... <laughs> We like to think he is. Uh, the the impression that you get from reading Gwern's summary on uh, modafinil is that the only cost is it makes your pee smell bad. There doesn't seem to be any downsides to using modafinil. Uh, it's supposedly like a really good cup of coffee that lasts 10, 15 hours, lowers your threshold for tedious work, makes you... I guess like more clear minded, improves your memory, does all sorts of things that are just kind of in the good category. So modafinil would be an example of something that you could arguably uh, that something that is arguably has no downside or at least nothing significant and would seem to improve everyone who takes it. So what would be the argument against it at that point? Is it just like um, like unfairness of distribution or something else? Go ahead, Unsane. Well, one angle that comes into play with modafinil coffee uh, and will also, I think, come into play with things like psychedelics is that drugs, even apparently costless ones, uh, can be a problem in that they can, serve as a, they can serve as a replacement for other things that you should be getting the quote-unquote hard way. And I think coffee is a great example where if you have access to coffee, you can cheat yourself on sleep your whole life and still keep functioning at a normal rate, but you're doing damage to yourself in the process. There are many things in life that drugs can be an apparent shortcut to. And I think a lot of those things are worth getting on their own merits. And when you don't need to get them on their own merits, you end up a weaker person for it and possibly a less healthy one. All right, Sultan, you wanted to respond? Yes, I guess in reference to, well, in reference to Gwern's evident uh, discussions of the effects of modafinil, other nootropics, I would say 
even if there isn't a particularly malign effect with regards to changing brain chemistry, uh, potentially having negative effects on other bodily systems, there's still the potential for developing tolerance and dependence. Uh, this can happen even with fairly weak categories of drugs. It can certainly happen with uh, coffee. Um, with regards to the way that, uh, well, bodies generally are able to build up the capacity to more quickly and efficiently eliminate a certain substance if they are inured to being exposed to that substance. So, Sultan, would you have an objection to, let's just go with modafinil, let's say it had no side effects whatsoever, no downsides, uh, you didn't build up tolerance, your pee smells amazing, would you still have an objection to it? I would say, well, from a utilitarian perspective, there's probably no particular downsides in the hypothetical you mentioned, but it still normalizes a culture where everybody has to be wired, so to speak, in order to satisfy the standards of productivity in their uh, occupation. Like, Scott Alexander wrote about this in an article I just linked regarding the questions of prescribing Adderall to his patients um, when they work in a certain detail-oriented uh, occupation and find that they're more commonly distracted than their co-workers who are all on Adderall themselves, that I would generally be against a culture of normalizing dependence to a given substance, even that are otherwise benign in their effects. Uh, let me just point out that modafinil is... Uh, modafinil dependence is extremely rare. Uh, and, uh, like, again, the reality is modafinil has virtually no side effects. And with, a you know, proper care of a doctor and proper dose, it's uh, literally basically nothing. Like, there is no... There is no risk of dependence or tolerance or anything if you don't use absurd amounts of it like totally inappropriate amounts. Well, I still want to push back um, because uh, yeah, there may not be a physical cost there, but you're still, you're using that instead of cultivating something like discipline. Again, there's a personal cost there that comes from taking the shortcut. Sorry. My phone keeps randomly start. My, my phone keeps randomly playing grateful dead. I don't know what's going on, <laughs> <laughs> which is really, really topical actually. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna go ahead and exit that. I might, app, I might no, I might keep trying <laughs> <laughs> to tell me something. <laughs> we weren't even talking about weed. <laughs> so insane! You can you can do both. Why can't you do both? Of course you can, but let's be honest. We're human. Are we going to? Well, hold on. We're talking about you, you can get a good night's sleep and have a cup of coffee, but when push comes to shove, you're gonna take the easy way. Well. Not everyone is, because I don't drink coffee, but my the point being, we're talking about putting modafinil in the water supply. We're not talking about, like... Hypothetically, okay? We're not planning, like, a mass criminal conspiracy. Right, and, and we'll, we'll keep saying that, but... Um, <laughs> the, 
<laughs> I'm saying even, even there on a societal level, I think that would be even worse that that allows people to function as though they had discipline and, but it doesn't, I mean, no, okay, maybe I'm you, crazy. Maybe I'm, Sir, no, no. maybe I'm Calvin's dad at this point, but it doesn't build the character that you need. That, that's one of the things about BS busy work in school is obviously it's not about getting it done because it doesn't help you. It's about developing the discipline and the character to do those things you don't want to do, even when it doesn't feel good. Okay. Or even when you're naturally distracted. This comes off as a complete non sequitur to me. Like I totally don't get Jesus God. <laughs> I, I, I closed it. I don't... This, this is Justine's plan all along. He's gonna silence us by it's like there's a hacker drowning us out with groovy tunes. I, I closed the app, it opened its back up and started playing again. Okay. It's not even open. I can't to even tell close you it. Something. Isn't this like how Apple put U2 in every iPhone or something? <laughs> oh, God. You Songs must, of innocence. You must listen to the Grateful Dead. Who wanted to, to chime in? Here, let me, let me, let me explain what I, what I think I'm hearing first and then see if you can fix it. Uh, or what I think is basically this is like uh, I think a very good analogy here is fluoride and dental hygiene. Um, I was thinking about that exactly too. You know how I feel about fluoride. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. <laughs> Do we have any fluoride truthers? I am a fluoride truther. Putting fluoride in the water supply. The, I think the only thing you could potentially make an argument for is that people will have, will use the, the like moral licensing effect and perhaps take slightly, slightly less good care of their teeth. On the other hand, by adding all this fluoride into the water supply, you're also massively increasing the base level of dental hygiene, which then everyone who goes and flosses and, you know, brushes and whatever is adding even, even, you know, exponentially on top of, on top of benefits. So why isn't it the same with modafinil? Right. So I'd like to, I'd like to respond to that and we'll, we'll treat your metaphor with the fluoride in the spirit in which it's intended. And I won't go off on all the other problems with fluoride, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, so an example would be this miracle on the Hudson, this, uh, you, you might remember several years back, maybe, maybe in the, the aughts, there was this plane that something went wrong. I think they had a bird strike and the pilots had to land on the Hudson river and they were able to, because of this lifetime of experience, of hard work, of building character and skill. Whereas if we automated that, those pilots may not have had those skills. And the plane would not have been able to handle that on its own. In fact, I think the inquest proved that uh, the, the the default algorithms in there would have tried to get the plane to another airport where everyone would have died because it wouldn't have worked. So my point with character is that, yeah, most of the time you can glide by doing it the easy way. But when the chips are down, just every now and then... It matters that you have built virtue the hard way. And on a societal level, yeah, you know what? Probably it would be a net win if everybody got it the easy way. But every now and then, it's not going to be. And that scares me. I'm still... I don't I don't know if we're going to be able to get through on this point because I still don't understand what the virtue is that's being obtained by medafinal use that somehow allows you to skip anything. Like, there's no... Modafinil does not give you magically, you know, let's say there's a, there's an absolute scale of discipline of all people in the world and it's zero to a hundred. Modafinil does not magically give you 80 or 90 or whatever on the scale of absolute discipline. 
it improves your relative discipline or your relative ability to do menial work or, you know, whatever. It's not a magic drug that puts you above everyone else. And unsane, wouldn't your argument also apply to uh, some mental health issues that are medicated or some mental health issues that are improved by medication? Um, possibly, but I mean, if it's at the point where you have a diagnosed mental health issue, I think that's probably a separate issue. Uh, although I could say, for example, a good a good uh, analogy down that line might be my grandmother, who for years has been on this cocktail of medicines, which is pretty freaky. And she and her doctor both say, you know, if, if I just went outside and walked 20 minutes a day, I wouldn't need to take these. But she doesn't. Right. And the other thing that comes, the other example that comes to mind is uh, adding vitamin D to the milk supply. Uh, because what was it? I think it was used to address rickets. Is that, am I right? I think iodide and salt might be a good example, but I, I also don't think that uh, anything was lost. Cause in the 1930s, uh, there was a concern of, over the disease called rickets which is a weakening of bones in children. Uh, so the public health position was to uh, add vitamin D to the milk supply as a way to bolster uh, vitamin D. I guess you, like, you know, echoing Unsane's argument would be, well, if you just spend more time outside, you don't need to have vitamin D added to the milk supply. But then the rejoinder is, well, they're not. So I guess the it becomes a question of, do you just accept this imperfect uh, reality or do you just go with the supplement? Well, in this case, I think we've spent enough time on it and I think I've made my point okay. as well as I'm going to. So let's move on. All right. That's fair. I guess talking about psychedelics is, <laughs> is next. <laughs> so, okay. We've, we've addressed the, we've solved the issue of nootropics. Um, everyone agrees that it, modafinil is to be introduced to the water supply. Inshallah. Is your phone yes. playing music again? Okay. Yes, I close Spotify and it keeps popping up anyway and playing Grateful Dead. What? I swear this is actually. Can you happening. like restart your phone? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and do that. All right. So another uh, another realm for. Let's move on to talk about psychedelics. And in recent years, there's been an increased interest and increased research activity in the realm of psychedelics. A lot of this has been as a result of the FDA and the DEA being more relaxed about the rules governing uh, psychedelic research. And we've gotten kind of like a bevy, a, a bumper crop of new studies that kind of showcase the, in some instances, significant impact that psychedelics can have on individuals taking it. University, you're probably the one most familiar with these studies. Do you want to start us off? Uh, sure. So there's, yeah, <laughs> this is, there's a lot. <laughs> there's, there's a study on psilocybin that is probably the one that gets repeated the most because it was a controlled study and had it still had a, a very dramatic observed impact. Yeah. People who have taken psilocybin in a designated therapeutic setting with like a like a, a I guess like a mental health professional that was guiding the trip, uh, they often compare it to that experience that one afternoon on high on mushrooms. They compare it, they label it as one of the most profound spiritual experiences they've ever had with some people comparing it to like watching the birth of their children or something like that. Yeah. So, so that's a good way to introduce it though. What you're talking about is the Marsh Chapel experiment. Uh, it's also called the Good Friday experiment. It was done in 1962 uh, at Boston University. And uh, it's under the supervision of Timothy Leary. 
uh, most famously, and they investigated uh, whether psilocybin would act as uh, as an entheogen in religiously predisposed subjects. So these were all divinity students. Uh, and just to clarify, an entheogen is a drug that produces alterations in consciousness uh, that are perceived as having to do with sacred uh, sacred themes or supernatural entities, uh, gods, things like that. Uh, so anyway, in this experiment, they had 20 students that they divided into two groups, uh, double blind with psilocybin and the control group receiving uh, niacin as a placebo. And almost basically the result of this experiment was that all, almost all of the members of the experimental group uh, that received psilocybin reported profound religious experiences. Uh, and in 25 year follow-up, all of them except for one described their experiences uh, as having, or as being one of the high points of their spiritual life. Uh, and then there's, there are further studies that have been conducted on the same, you know, mystical experiences after psilocybin uh, one in 2000 published in 2006 in which over half of the participants rated the experience among the top five most meaningful spiritual experiences in their lives and thought it uh, increased their their personal well-being and life satisfaction. So this these are just a couple of studies. There's there's some others that are starting to become more common, and this also fits with the extensive uh, reports from recreational users or amateur users of incredible, enlightening, wonderful, joyous experiences. I mean, you can go on Arrowhead and just read people, read reports from people whose lives have been changed. Um, and we, there's even studies that show that psilocybin can have uh, lasting changes on personality, specifically openness to experience. So, you know, the big five ocean openness to experience is one of the big five traits. Uh, and psilocybin can reliably increase uh, your score and openness to experience even uh, well after taking taking the drug. Uh, and then just a quick, probably to end this, there's also been quite a bit more research recently into uh, treatment, medical treatment using psychedelics. Uh, MDMA has gained a lot of attention for uh, PTSD treatment, especially for veterans. Uh, Ibogaine has become uh, a little bit more popular for smoking cessation uh, and other addiction cessation, as well as psilocybin and LSD and uh, ayahuasca all being used for uh, anxiety treatment, for therapy enhancement to treat PTSD, to treat addictions. Uh, all kinds of different things. So there's there's a ton of potential for psychedelics in particular uh, to to create a lot of benefits for us medically that we are currently totally underexploring and underutilizing. Okay, thank thank you for that. Uh, one of the I guess uh, one of the things that pops into my mind is that uh, these psychedelics are now being used to treat what would be considered mental health disorders. And I'm using that as like a broad categorization and they weren't really taken seriously. Uh, well, 
They perhaps weren't taken as seriously as they should because they were more of a simple compound. There could be an argument made that there just wasn't like a prop, uh, a patent or profit motive behind the manufacturing it and marketing it for to address these these needs. So, I mean, in my mind, they're indistinguishable from what you could consider therapeutic medicine. Does anyone else see a problem with uh, blurring the lines between psychedelics and, and medicine? No, I think as long as it's under uh, you know professional guidance and observation, I, I, obviously there are amazing tools. We're, we're starting to see that. There's a lot of potential there that's been ignored, and that's just a crime. That's just been a yeah. crime against humanity as far as I'm concerned. I'm saying I'll, I'll come back to you with, the, with a longer question. Uh, Sultan, what do you say to that? I would say... Um... In general, I have nothing against uh, the use of, well, what have traditionally been drugs as prescribed medicines, provided it takes place in a legal context with generally strict guidelines for use. I would say that there is some level of risk insofar as I think this to tie it back to another similar compound with a different effect. I believe methadone was first developed to treat heroin addiction, but if I'm correct, uh, heroin first originated as a similar compound to treat morphine addiction. Well, I would say that there's always a certain amount of risk for the cure to, well, more or less become the new disease in terms of using a substance to treat problems with another substance. Right. I guess with regards to the potential to treat PTSD, I would say um, if there are observed benefits, then I wouldn't necessarily be against uh, regulated prescription of it, but I would uh, certainly hope that it was generally means and effect tested and, well, not just prescribed for the sake of it or because of any sort of influence of the manufacturer in general. So, um, how do you, uh, how do you address the, the opposite concern? Uh, LSD was invented accidentally in the 1930s. MDMA, I believe was like in the 1950s or something like that. Uh, a lot of these, the point I'm making is that a lot of these, uh, psychedelics or whatever, a lot of these substances are relatively new, but because they get attached to recreational use rather than like serious therapeutic use, they get banned or discouraged by society at large. And we don't find out the benefits of them until decades later. So we miss out on all, all this, all the intervening time. So how do you address, how do you mitigate the concern about uh, tabooing a substance too harshly to the point where you miss out on the therapeutic value of it. Xantos, go ahead. I think that as I've linked an an article that Scott wrote about why were early psychedelicists so weird. I I love that article. (laughs) Yeah, it's so great. But I I think this goes directly to your point, right? Which is when these substances were invented, um, people like, you know, Tim Leary and Richard Alpert, these were, you know, somewhat serious, serious scientists who experimented with and investigated these compounds and were certainly not the the kind of modal recreational user that we would perceive as being 
you know, in, in modern times. And yet these many, many, many of these early investigators and early psychedelicists kind of went off, went off the deep end, right? <laughs> Moved to India and became prominent yoga advocates or became alien conspiracy theorists. I just want to highlight one example. Take your pick. They're all, they're all so great. I mean, I, I recommend that everyone read this article because it's just wild. Uh, but to pick like one example, there's John Lilly, who was uh, a doctor. He argued that aliens were locked in a battle to manipulate Earth's coincidences and with them the future of the human species. And afterwards, he became an expert yogi and claimed to have achieved enlightenment or the highest uh, union with God. The examples listed here were not necessarily surprising because uh, you have a bunch of almost by definition, open-minded individuals that stumble across this drug that you don't really know. You don't have like a good um, proxy in terms of how to address it. Like one tab of LSD will get you really fucked up and it's, you know, like smaller than a staple uh, compared to, you know, drinking a ton of alcohol or smoking a lot of weed if that's, that's a comparison. So the people that first took LSD, they had no idea how much they're supposed to take and they had no idea what they were doing to themselves because they were the pioneers in the psychedelic uh, playground. Uh, it's not, I guess, unreasonable if someone is taking DMT uh, for the first time and then they like see a vision of earth with machine elves and all sorts of shit. You don't, you lose, you get unmoored from reality on a, a visceral level because what you're experiencing is, is extremely real to you. So fuck yeah. To, <laughs> to me, it wasn't that surprising that the early psychedelics were so weird because they were just kind of, they were the, like, figuratively, the, the Soviet cosmonauts that were sacrificed to, to test out the limits of space travel. We didn't know what we were doing. Some people got very harmed. Some people get, died in the process. But they were the pioneers of this, like, new landscape. Well, there's also this obvious selection effect that the people who were willing to trip on an unknown substance were probably not, you know, modal in terms of weirdness to begin with. Yep. Yeah. Almost all of them, I guess, were academics of some kind. So that's also not surprising that they would be high on the curiosity scale. Xantos, go ahead. I see that argument and Interversity and I were, were conversing earlier about that with regards to the fact that a lot of the, the negative effects of psychedelics... Um, certain people are, are more predisposed to. Um, and so if you're, if your underlying risk factors are low, then your, your risk is low. Um, but I think that the idea that these people are, you know, self-selecting in some sense for, for all existing pre-existing weirdness or pre-existing risk is countered at least in, in some sense by the fact that these are like, these are, um, you know, Harvard professors and respected researchers. So while they might have some degree of openness to experience already, that's, we can, you know, argue about, they're certainly not the random person in Berkeley trying LSD in their basement while listening to the Grateful Dead or something. Well, I so I want to give uh, Sultan opportunity to ask, answer the original question. How do you mitigate the risk of tabooing a substance to the point of uselessness? I'd say that's uh, certainly a difficult uh, question to answer since it certainly is true both that uh, there can be 
overlooked medicinal properties of plenty of substances that are banned for their psychoactive effects. I guess uh, the converse of that is that uh, it's certainly capable of using a lot of prescription substances to get high, as can be seen in substances like, uh, I believe, Purple Drank, which was something like uh, using the codeine and cough syrup just to get a high from it. Or just go with oxycodone. Yes, or oxycodone, that's true. Um, I'd say that, well, in a similar fashion to how we generally don't approve distribution of medicines to the general public without uh, FDA approval. Granted, that's its own level of contentiousness. Uh, there should be a reluctance to well, leap headlong into prescription uh, of substances with known psychoactive effects until there is a much higher level of knowledge about safe dosage, potential side effects, any other potential second or third order effects uh, that a certain substance could have on a person's life. Go ahead, Interversity. So that means you're in favor of either totally doing away with the current scheduling system of drugs or uh, taking a large number of drugs down on the scheduling scale because currently a large number of these drugs are schedule one, which means they cannot be used uh, for medical purposes or it's extremely difficult, uh, you know, virtually impossible to even, even study them. I, I could just say something quickly on that interversity. Go ahead, Xantos. Which is that uh, I, I think now not to say that everything that's schedule one, for example, deserves to, to be schedule one, but I think there definitely is just a class of substance that we can recognize we shouldn't be messing around with. Um, and that's the sort of thing that we, we should be able to fully restrict in that right, sense. But the problem is that when we restrict things in particular to schedule one, uh, they can't even be studied or the, the process to even try to study them becomes so onerous and so difficult and so, you know, just co totally impossible to get the political will and the approvals and the permits that it's effectively impossible. So either you're saying we need to study these drugs and we need, we should understand them better and get a good idea of the dosage and, you know, figure out how we can use them appropriately, which means we need to deregulate all these drugs substantially so that they can be produced and studied or uh, they do we can keep the current scheduling system and these all these drugs should stay illegal and not studied. The second one. So we should not even study the potential, you know, medicinal therapeutic benefits of MDMA or LSD or ayahuasca. Well, we can obviously certain certain ones we can we can have a debate about, but I think largely yes. Uh, I kind of have the view that. It's almost like drinking alcohol to cure a hangover where you have a, a problem and instead of fixing the underlying cause of the problem, in this case, the hangover, instead of, you know, fixing the underlying 
drinking that you did the night before. We're just going to slap a, a Band-Aid on top in the form of a new well, substance. That's, that's just misunderstanding. That's misunderstanding how these therapies are used. Uh, in what it's way? It's not like... It's not... Li- well, hold on. Shelf that for, for the moment. Uh, Unsane, this is what I wanted to ask you. You you have a passing interest in psychedelics, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I okay. mean, on, on many levels, it's just... It's something that sounds cool to me that I want to do more of. It, does, it, uh, yeah. does the description, like the Good Friday study, does the description of the results, does that resonate with you? The results of people having permanent changes and being happy about them? Yeah, but specifically how it's tied to religious uh, enlightenment because all of the participants were divinity students. And yeah, you, and I, I, I you, could talk about uh, that consider yourself uh, religious. I do consider myself religious. Yeah, um, so is that is that like part of the reason why psychedelics resonate with you? It's actually, that, that's actually kind of the opposite for me. Okay, so psychedelics are actually cool to me for the reason that I, I like the idea of being able to take my brain out for a spin and see what it can do, see cool tessellated rainbow patterns flying through the sky and so on. That that sounds awesome to me. The stuff you're talking about is actually a huge point against uh, in my mind uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that if Murder Gandhi has taught us anything, it's that you can't trust how someone feels about the pill after they've taken it if the pill is known to change their perceptions of how good it was to take the pill. Um, it's possible. Who taught us? Yeah. Who said that? Oh, Murder Gandhi. Are you not... I might have to link that, and I can't because my laptop is buried under a pile of blankets. <laughs> Reference to a post that Scott made on uh, Less Wrong with regards to the uh, principle of substances that will change your general decision matrix about uh, taking more of them. The example that he gave was Gandhi taking a pill to make him one percent less pacifist in exchange for one million dollars and said that for example gandhi might consider that five million dollars was worth taking in exchange for becoming five percent less pacifistic but then the new gandhi who is now 95 percent pacifistic uh may consider another five percent change to also be no big deal in exchange for five million more dollars <laughs> okay i'll just link it to that <laughs> if you want to know more about murder gandhi just just click we're the talking link. about civilization right thanks for the clutch assist i, I really didn't want to have to explain that <laughs> well that that, that that was one thought the other one is the same thing and i'm, I'm going to be very brief but also broad as much as i can here because this is another one that could just go on forever um so, yeah, I'm religious. I believe in God. I'm an Orthodox Christian. And I think that there are such things as actual spiritual entities out there. And I'm very concerned about keeping as sober as I can about them, if you will. I think that since there are true meaningful experiences to be had with the divine and the spiritual, short-circuiting my brain into apparently experiencing that is a very risky and, and terrifying proposition for a lot of reasons. So when I say I, I like the idea of doing psychedelics, it's from the cool hallucination standpoint, because that sounds beautiful and wonderful to me. Um, the reason I don't do real psychedelics, and I probably never will, is because I'm very much afraid of what may happen deep inside of me and my subconscious and my soul and the false insights I might bring back from the other side that seem real to me, uh, but are in fact red herrings or, or paths to places I don't want to go. Okay. So going back to the topic of arbitrariness, um, and I'm going to ask you a question, uh, Sultan, how 
I'm, I'm basically repeating the question of how do you, if you have like a, if you have a, a mechanism of taboo or either societal taboo or criminal taboo, how do you make sure that it's, I guess, directed in the correct way? So the example that I think of, I mean, there's a few, but alcohol is accepted, I think, in large part because of how old it is and how invariably tied with tradition it is, uh, at least in non-Muslim societies. And um, if you do have a system where you have, where the, where the ethos of the system is to discourage recreational drug use, how do you ensure that it's properly calibrated? So the, the things that come to mind besides alcohol is, you know, the system banned marijuana and legalized oxycodone. So that doesn't seem to be a rational resolution to me. So how do you ensure that it's properly uh, within the guardrails? Well, I guess uh, to restate my previous position, I would describe myself as agnostic when it comes to the ideal legal regime. Like right. I would, but, but I'm not asking about the legal consequences. It's more the end result is uh, one substance is taboo and another isn't because it's it comes from a I mean not as much because it's prescribed by professionals. It's developed by corporations. So there's, there's this like, um, I don't know, almost like a detour that happens. Yeah. Well, I would generally say that I would err on the side of greater taboos, even encompassing things like alcohol, which I would say is generally, um, like you said, tolerated because it's extremely old and has a firm place in uh, history from basically the dawn of recorded civilization, but uh, that despite its effects uh, being generally much better understood than many other drugs uh, in existence, that doesn't uh, prevent it from having demonstrably negative effects on the lives of a lot of people who uh, develop a habit for it uh, into a malign just addiction and spiral into alcoholism and with regards to where to set the line of taboos i would generally say that it well there should be a firmer stigma against generally attempting to induce shall we say altered states of consciousness and generally a firmer opinion against um, generally attempting to make yourself into a given state of mind or state of being through the use of substances in general. I would generally say that dependence on a substance in order to either get into a state that uh, you enjoy ideally or in the worst case scenario uh, to get yourself to a baseline level of uh, tolerating life is generally a pathological 
relationship with that substance, and that generally proceeding down that path brings you closer to the worst case scenario, which I would say is substance addiction and or just uh, using so much of it that you open yourself to overdosing. Hold on on a second. I gotta clarify this. University, go ahead. So you're saying that just using any drug like me, you know, vaping a bowl of DMT because I think the uh, the the machine elves and the fractal uh, hyper patterns and the the pretty shapes and the colors and the matrix like patterns that envelop everything I see is really cool and uh, it makes me feel really warm inside. It makes me feel positive. I feel happy. Uh, I have a good time, and there's no ill effects as whatsoever, any at all. So what's uh, yeah, I don't I don't follow what you were saying with like that there's a pathological relationship just in doing a drug. And just to tack on an addendum question, uh, if the substance gives you an experience that is otherwise impossible to have, which I'd say most psychedelics fit the bill unless you stumble upon a, a religious experience, uh, what what exactly is the harm of foreclosing yourself from that? Sultan. The harm of foreclosing yourself from an, let's see, from an unprecedented high, did you say? An unprecedented experience, or, and Xantos, you'll have an opportunity to reply. Uh, I'm echoing, I'm adding a question to InterVersity's inquiry. What, if there is no harm, and it gives you access to an amazing experience that is not replicated anywhere else, then what's the problem? I would say that you generally should not attempt to obtain those experiences through substances in general, because I don't believe that that is a healthy relationship with that level of happiness or satisfaction. If there's no, let's say there's no risk of addiction and there's no like health downside to it which some psychedelics plausibly could fit the bill. What's the problem? I would still consider it a problem to divorce that level of satisfaction from any sort of meaningful um, effort beyond substance use to obtain that satisfaction, because what you're describing in terms of the perfect substance that gives you an amazing high with no downsides uh, is a bit reminiscent of, <laughs> at the risk of being cliche, uh, the substance Soma, which is used in uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, in which generally the populace has unfettered access to this amazing drug that will make them feel amazing uh, at any time that they want to take it that uh, is generally used so that they never actually have to feel unsatisfied with their position in life or with the society that they are in. That generally, that is used more or less as, well, a literal opiate of the masses. And... Well, 
so I, I can envision a few substances that fit the bill within the realm of psychedelics. So you have mushrooms. They, it's, they make you feel nauseous for a while. They last about, what, like four to five hours. But they don't really have any other downside. Um, LSD, similar safety profile. MDMA, maybe. Um, I guess DMT would also fit uh, in a similar profile. The biggest risk with psychedelics, as I understand it, and university, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's primarily in not being in a safe space or inducing yourself to engage in, in risky behavior. It's not with the substances themselves. Is that accurate, university? Uh, for the most part, yes. So I'd argue that there are substances that are close to what would be considered SOMO, the fictional SOMO, but they're not, I mean, psychedelics are not high sorry, <laughs> they're not, uh, they're, hi- they're not high on any list of addictive substances. I, as a public defender, I encounter plenty of people addicted to drugs. No one is ever addicted to psychedelics. It's one of those once a year or once every few months type of experiences. Xantos, you wanted to get something in, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, two points, one that we can, I can make now and one that we can make it as another point. I want to push back a little bit on the idea that these aren't, that these are non-risky substances. You know, there's, I I linked earlier the example of YouTube fitness star, Connor Murphy, Mm -hmm. who took ayahuasca and had a profoundly spiritual experience that resulted in basically him losing his mind and having a mental breakdown that he posted onto his YouTube page. And then a week later, he checks himself into a a psychiatric hospital. And basically he believed that he had achieved a higher state of consciousness, but at the same time, it was deeply disturbing for him. Right. And we'll link this in the show notes. It's a video of uh, what appears to be like a Connor Murphy having a mental breakdown in public on YouTube. Yeah. And so I think that there's, you know, there's, it's probably not risky. These substances, psychedelics aren't risky in the same sense that meth is risky, where if you take it, you're going to die because of the chemical itself. Um, But I think there's a, there's a risk of psychosis. Is it possible to overdose on methamphetamines? Absolutely. Yeah. Your your heart will explode like a water. It's rather difficult, but yes. Okay. It's just not something I encountered. Go ahead. Xantos, did you finish? Just that these substances have have risk to them, and we can talk about what the, the rate of that risk is or how many people experience permanent psychosis. But fundamentally, you're, you're going to be ingesting a substance that has a permanent or semi-permanent effect on your mind, and you're not in complete control of what that effect is going to be. I'd really like to add to that. Go ahead, Unsane. So, yeah, I mean... Any time you hear the words permanent personality change, that should set off every warning siren in your head. Because even if it might look attractive, again, that, that's probably an irreversible thing that you're doing to who you are as a person. And, you know, that that is maybe the right choice to make, but it should not be taken lightly, I would say. And uh, also, I wanted, to, I wanted to back up what Santos was saying before, which is, you know, from my perspective, again, as a religious person, there are true and good and, and right religious experiences to be had out there. And I mean, I think we should be seeking them the old fashioned way. <laughs> it, it concerns me that people can have a shortcut to this sensation of meaningfulness and the sensation of insight 
that is, I mean, okay. Something I really wanted to bring up was, uh, Scott's article, his, uh, review of on the road where you have these guys racing around the country, having these quote unquote religious experiences where they're always perpetu- perpetually like on the edge of attaining the insight or having the, the higher truth. They're always almost there, but they never actually get there because drugs don't actually take you there. They just make you feel like you're getting it. Whereas I think those truths are out there and we should be seeking them and drugs may get in the way of that for a lot of people. It's almost like a, a false mirage in a sense, right? Yeah, it, 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 exactly. So it's, you know, that, that is a risk. No, there may not be any physiological problem, but if it, if it prevents you from reaching what you would have without the drug, that is a real, I mean, for, as again, a religious person, that is a real threat. The machine elves don't actually exist. Well, maybe. Well, we'll save that for like another three hour episode to determine whether the machine elves do exist or not. Anything else to say on psychedelics? Yeah, I did. I did just did want to point out that it is really important to have a babysitter. Anytime you're doing something that incapacitates you, you are surrendering your agency and you're not really responsible for yourself at that point. You can't be. I, I want to give a very brief example. Um, in, in my own life, a few months ago, I happened to be awake at 11 o'clock at night and saw a news article that the town like next door to mine was completely burning down and on fire. And I had heard almost nothing about this. Um, because I was awake and because I was alert, I was able to evacuate myself and my daughter and get out of town. And thankfully, I mean, the fire didn't actually reach our house, but it was real close. I was able to get out very quickly. Whereas if I had been lying in bed insensate because I was high, that was not going to happen. And sure, it's very unlikely that those things will happen. But again, it's one of those tail risk things where you never really know. So if you are going to use drugs, use them responsibly, by which I mean have someone else be responsible because you can't be. Yeah, there's there's no disagreement that you should have, uh, what is it called, interversity? Uh, not a babysitter, but a guru, a trip center. And that's, yeah. that's uh, I, I'm fully uh, 200% on board with everything I'm saying just said. As, as the, by far the, having used the most psychedelics, of anyone, I think, in in this Discord, probably not not just the people on this episode, but in this Discord, you deserve a badge. Well, let me ask you this, University. What um, do you have any response to? Uh, I think the uh, the downsides of having like a bad trip or a bad experience on psychedelics. Sure. So is that just like an acceptable risk? Uh, okay. <laughs> let me let me let me answer. So first of all, it is yes, it is incredibly important to not only be uh, responsible and aware in terms of kind of what's physically happening around you and making sure that if you're going to do something like this, that you have allocated all your responsibilities, that you have taken care of anyone who's dependent on you, that you have ensured that there's no uh, dangerous you know, things that are going on around you that could put you or others around you in danger, uh, making sure that anything you're using, you know, equipment to smoke or heat something up or whatever, uh, that that's not going to become a danger if you become incapacitated. Like any, any time someone trips, all of these things are things that need to happen. If you are going to even try to be responsible. Uh, and then on top of that, there's also, so that's what we call set and setting, uh, set being kind of your mindset and setting being your environment basically. So that's the setting, uh, the set, your mindset also needs to be in the right place. Uh, generally 
there's a lot of woo in about this. There's a lot of people who do a lot of psychedelics who have very strong opinions about how you need to approach drugs and whatever. University, what's a what's a good resource for people who are interested in psychedelics? But there is are there any websites that you can point to? Psychonaut Wiki is is a pretty good resource. Um, it has some really detailed descriptions of of all the effects that a different drug might have. It really does a good job of uh, trying to describe in intense detail what every effect is and kind of categorizing them. Um, you know, having a lot of specificity. So that's that's a good one. And then the other one that I would shout out is Erowid, uh, E-R-O-W-I-D. And Erowid has a ton of resources on just basic information uh, about drugs and dosage and effects and that sort of thing and history, legality. But the biggest thing, and this is an, a total treasure trove, uh, is the experience reports, uh, the experience vaults at Arrowhead, which are uh, volunteers, you know, people send in their reports to the website of them doing, experiencing some drug or a combination of drugs or whatever. And they try to do their best to write about what the experience was like and how it affected them and what the, what the timeline was and what dose they took. And what this does is this is, this is what the illegalization of or the prohibition of all these kinds of drugs, especially psychedelics, has done is drive the research that would otherwise be going on at universities in controlled settings underground. So now we get Arrowhead, which thank God for Arrowhead, but it's uh, it's an artifact of it being illegal that we have to have these reports written by volunteers, uh, triaged and then reviewed and published also by volunteers doing it all for free and with donations. So uh, <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a lot of resources uh, out there available for, for most psychedelics and for you know, tripping in general. And that's something that I, when I you know, talk to other people about drugs, I'm very, I insist basically that anyone who try, wants to try any things stronger than like weed or alcohol, if you want to try any psychedelic, you need to do your research and you need to read trip reports and you need to see, you need to get uh, as best a sense as you can of what you're getting into and not just be doing things. You don't know what the effects are going to be uh, doing dosages where you don't understand what, how long it might go for. Uh, there's a lot of irresponsibility with psychedelics and other drugs. And I am strongly against that. So my, my own position that is in favor of less taboo would both legally as well as societally is, uh, is the concern that you raised in that people are going to use drugs regardless. Uh, and it seems to be much safer and much more beneficial for everyone involved for it to be accepted so that the requisite support system can spring up into action instead of having to rely on anonymous strip reports on online uh anything else to say on psychedelics yeah. well i'd like to echo interversity's uh statement about the risks i would say in as much as i evaluate these things i would uh, generally consider the tail end risks while unlikely are sufficient uh, discouragement uh, that i would recommend 
against uh, psychedelics in general. I know one thing that uh, hasn't come up as of yet, uh, which by all indications seems to be a very infrequent side effect of psychedelics, but still a possibility, is uh, the potential for persistent hallucinations after the fact. I know Scott's written a post about all this. There are also uh, stories that uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous philosopher after using mescaline, started hallucinating crabs all over everywhere. (laughs) And they're all dancing to that music. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to back that up. Well, just in terms of the tail end effects of what has the potential to go wrong, uh, a person whose article I linked and leave Alexander Kolpakov was uh, doing shrooms with his girlfriend and co-host of his YouTube channel, and evidently started to go into a bad trip, thought that she wanted to kill him, and wound up uh, shooting her multiple times. So I would say in terms of unwise settings to uh, start tripping in, I would say definitely whenever you have access to firearms. I guess I'll, I have to read the copy of this week's uh, sponsor. Uh, the Sackler Family Trust has been a charitable organization since uh, 2010, handing out millions of dollars in support of charitable activities in the fields of med- medical science, healthcare, and access to education and the arts. Yeah, thank you for the support, Sackler Family Trust. So let's talk about a uh, completely unrelated uh, topic, the broad category of hard and soft drugs. Sultan, go ahead. So I think there's a useful distinction to be made in from, with regards to nootropics and psychedelics versus the other categories of drugs. Uh, which is that both nootropics and psychedelics tend to be fairly benign, relatively, uh, don't have very many unpleasant side effects, and are low in their capacity for dependence or tolerance, and that in with regards to a lot of the harder and more illicit drugs, uh, that's decidedly not the case, that there is a much greater capacity for dependence and addiction with regards to other types of drugs, and I think that uh, there's probably a much stronger case to be made against uh, normalizing those drugs legally or socially. Okay. Any uh, strong objections to that, or is that in, in accord with your position generally? Xantos? Yeah, I, I think that there's. I would, I would very, I agree with that distinction to a certain extent. I think it does get a little bit blurry in regards to some drugs and some nootropics having similar effects. And so then, are we just quibbling about the downsides or the the addiction potential? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I I came up, I came up with my own ranking. So as, as some people know, I work as a public defender and invariably a ton of my clients have some substance abuse issue. And just from my limited perspective within the criminal justice system, the, the drug that I would place as number one in terms of causing the biggest problems is definitely alcohol. Yes. Even though it's probably the most common drug, it's probably safe to assume that everyone 
on this sh- on this recording has imbibed at some point. Uh, I I could be wrong, but I'm saying it's like a safe assumption. Uh, the there's there's almost like a hockey stick graph in terms of how how big how big the problem gets when you're like at the high the upper echelons of alcohol consumptions. And I, I've just seen like so many cases of people doing really really fucking stupid shit, almost always involving driving, but sometimes involving firearms and uh, assaults and just various decision makings that would not have happened had they not been fueled by alcohol. I placed the heroin with uh, like as a close second. Heroin has the potential if you're at the upper echelons of addiction to just completely demolish your life. I can tell who the heroin addicts just by looking at their criminal records uh, usually involves like criminal trespassing and shoplifting, something of that nature, because the only way they can feed their habit is by stealing shit all the time. Uh, Beyond that, it starts to get murky. The meth heads that I know of, they're like, I don't know, a third, like a distant third in terms of ranking. They don't really bother anyone. They just take meth and have sex uh, and sometimes commit property crimes, but it's just, it's not as bad as uh, alcohol and and heroin. So that, that kind of ties into one of my comments earlier and that I find a lot of the categorizations to be uh, arbitrary. Yeah, they're all, it's all arbitrary. I mean, you know, alcohol, as you say, you see it as a more, uh, more of a problem. And there's a variety of factors that could play into that from, you know, obviously it's much easier to, you can go to the corner store and pick up a bottle of anything you want for, you know, 10, 20 bucks. And anyone who's over the age of 21 can do that. And anyone who's under 21 can, you know, get a fake ID or whatever. So it's a lot easier. Uh, it's more accepted, all this stuff. But I think the most, the crucial thing which you are getting at is that alcohol doesn't, it's not so intense of a depressant uh, that it stops you from doing things like heroin. When you're on heroin, you're just probably sitting somewhere. You're not like getting up and getting into bar fights and going, you know, drunk driving and doing a hundred miles an hour on the freeway, like a fucking moron. Uh, whereas an alcohol, that is exactly what you're doing. And I, and that ties into maybe like one of Sultan's points in that a, a big problem with why alcohol is so destructive is because of how widely accepted it is. Like it's, there's a societal acceptance to it's okay to drive to the bar more or less provided you have like a plausible way home. Uh, it's okay to drink a lot. It's okay to do this every weekend. Uh, and within those cracks, you fall into these destructive scenarios that crop up. Is that is that an accurate summary of your point, Sultan? Yes, I would generally say that um, in line with earlier points, I think it's a mistake to treat alcohol as uh, of a different kind of other drugs just because it's legal. And uh, I think the only reason uh, why the legal framework is sustainable is that we've constructed all of these laws and norms as to what uh, you can and can't do while you are intoxicated, which serves to mitigate but not eliminate the damage to society as a result of alcohol consumption. Xantos? Um, I was just going to say, I think that that's that kind of, you know, societally accepted distinction is of interest to me, particularly 
because it makes me wonder about it makes me think about my own usage for example i'm going to be writing a, a thesis paper in the next in the coming months and am planning to take modafinil to aid me in that because that's you know many people do it it's socially acceptable yeah all i heard all the cool kids are doing it all the cool all I the did coolest my whole entire kids master's are doing program it. without a single and, pill of adderall and i walked backwards uphill both ways <laughs> well you won't be as cool as i am then um but any, anyway anyway i i tell that story because you know i'm planning to do that and i think that oh you know that's that's okay it's socially acceptable but i also know a person who procrastinated their thesis for the entire year and then in the last week before it was due decided to go on a meth bender to write their thesis <laughs> why why meth i mean i have there absolutely is, no well i should preface that there there's kind of like a almost like a meaningless distinction between Adderall and methamphetamine. Yeah, that that's exactly my, my point is that, you know, if I was going to take Adderall to write my thesis, it's like, oh, okay, cool. That makes sense. I would never in a million years take meth to write my thesis. Did it work? Oh, yes, it did. Okay, <laughs> he graduated. So, all right. That sounds like a, a success story. That That's like my, my, my point is that we, we talk about meth as being like terrible and awful um, because, and it is. But I think that there's less of a distinction than we might want to think about which drugs are socially acceptable yes. and which aren't. 100%. Yeah, I think there are quite a few stories of uh, various societies more or less uh, legitimizing drug use in various capacities to mixed effects. I believe the German army in either World War One or World War II uh, prescribed meth to their soldiers for energy, um, and that there was a surprisingly low rate of pathology among people who had been on meth in terms of reintegrating into general society just because it was uh, considered socially accepted. And yet, on the other hand, it was the case in Japan in World War II that they encouraged meth use among factory workers to boost productivity, which <laughs> led to a long struggle with meth addiction among the populace uh, in the subsequent decades. With, and a, that was a partial contributor to Japan's current extremely strict social norms around drug use, if anyone is familiar Essentially, in Japan, if you are found to have used even drugs like marijuana, that's considered basically a cancel-worthy offense, that uh, celebrities that have been outed as uh, drug users have had shows in which they have appeared in taken off the air and more or less had their careers ended from it. University, go ahead. Yeah, the use of meth that you're talking about in Germany was also among the civilian population. Uh, it was pervitin was the their their meth pills that they were using. Uh, so that was also in the general population at the time. So there is precedent to uh, putting modafinil in the water. Hell yeah! So so should I sh should I take meth to write my thesis or, or not? What are what are we what are we feeling here? <laughs> modafinil. Find meth. Uh, there's there's a, a risk with. Uh, Adderall and methamphetamine 
the way it works is, uh, well, I'll describe what it means because it opens up your uh, dopamine receptors. It renders anything very pleasurable, but it also means that already pleasurable things are significantly more pleasurable. So there's a risk of being sidetracked. <laughs> that's why, well, that's probably not that I, I was going to use meth anyway, but that's the reason why cough. I don't like, I don't use coffee as a study aid is because I get too distracted. Uh, anything else uh, we want to cover? Well, how about this parting advice? Yeah, I'll go first. I'm saying. So, so my parting advice is, uh, you know, earlier introversity said you can go online and read all these stories about these amazing experiences people have on psychedelics. That is true. And they're fascinating to read about. Also do yourself a favor and go to Google and type in stories of bad trips. Uh, you, you want to know what you're potentially signing up for, because once you're on that ride, you're not getting off. Yeah. Scare yourself silly. And uh, echoing university's advice, definitely don't do drugs by yourself. Well, echoing university's advice, don't do drugs. <laughs> Got Darn him. it, you, you sharpened my pencil <laughs> just enough so that it says, do, don't do drugs. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, go, go for me, go, go crazy with drug use. Just, just don't drive because that's never... Yeah. A good idea unless you're on the daphno and you're driving just immaculately <laughs> then, then you're cool parting parting advice i do like i said do your research do like unsane said do your research about the good and the bad because you can't walk into any trip knowing what's going to happen ahead of time no matter if you've done it before no matter how many times you've done it no matter what setting you're in or talking about it uh, even I, I have had trips that were like, oh shit, I'm having a really bad time and I was not expecting this. So it happens. And that's something that was talked about earlier. These are not, this is not risk free, even with me, you know, advocating for them and talking about all the benefits and all that there, these are absolutely have risks that go along with them. They can affect your your personality. They can affect your mental capacity and your ability to function, uh, and they can affect your psychological, your state of mind, your how you feel about life and about yourself in in intense and sometimes unsettling ways. So this isn't this is nothing to be taken lightly. Can I give one more? Yeah, I'm saying my other one is to, to kind of echo what I said before. Look, I believe human beings have the capacity to experience these things for a reason. And again, okay, as a Christian, I'm just going to say it. Don't cheat yourself out of what might have been by taking the shortcut to this. There are, there are things out there worth pursuing and I recommend you do it the hard way, the hard way. Um, and I've already said what I am. So, you know, can't what I, I do both. I'm saying, can't I do both? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and, uh, for uh, for our Patreon supporters this week, uh, make sure to make use of the Modafinil coupon. Sign up, subscribe to our OnlyFans. Yeah. Type Bailey to get a 20% discount. We could probably partner with Modafinil, Mike. <laughs> buy, buy our D.A.R.E. merch. Yeah, we're, we're uh, monetizing both sides of the conflict. Beast. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. <laughs>